Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these podcasts are not for me- uh, not for diagnosing any actual eye condition, just for medical education purposes only. Yeah, they're not for medical education either. These are for fun. God <laughs> do you want me God. to redo that? No, no, no. We're keeping all of this. <laughs> oh, uh, each week we bring you a high-yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we doing this week? This week we're talking about aniridia, kind of rounding out the th- couple last episodes on other things with anterior segment issues. Yeah. Sounds and, good. Uh, um, is this yeah. going to be out in time, you think, for OCAPs? Um, yeah, if Are your OCAPs, OCAPs even still... happening? <laughs> like... Yeah, that seems to be a bone of contention at time of recording. Um, I know <laughs> in some states, because of COVID-19, the testing centers are knocked out. So to our friends in Washington State and in parts of Texas and in Boston and other parts, I think Detroit as well. You know, I hope everyone's We wouldn't families... trade places with you, right. But... Yeah, I hope everyone's families are healthy and everyone is doing okay. Last I heard, uh, the plan was for people to be able to take it like online at home later with like their webcam on as a security feature to make sure people don't cheat. I don't know. That, that'll that be interesting to see how they pull that off. Wow. But that's... And if you're listening to this in the far-flung future... Yeah, I hope that COVID-19 is a distant memory of the past, or um, I shouldn't joke too much more about it. It's probably going to get pretty bad. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Canada closed its borders today. Yeah, I saw that. I Great. saw that. Okay. So well, we were Canada just talking really... about how much it's affecting everything, and like my program, Ben's program, things are shutting down, or at least slowing down with clinic volume, surgery, elective surgery. Yeah. So we all hope that you guys out there can... Get as much out of your training as you can and stay as safe as you can, too, and hope that you don't get too walloped over the head with all of this stuff. Yeah, our thoughts and prayers are with you folks. Um, <laughs> is that a joke, too? <laughs> no, 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 for real. For okay. real. I really hope everyone's doing well. You know, our, I consider our audience our friends, and I hope everyone's doing okay. Aniridia, though. Right. Back Aniridia. to the Back lack to of iris tissue. Uh, <laughs> is that really what it is? Is it really even aniridia? The iris is actually always still there a little bit. But, so it really uh, is never completely aniridic. Well, yeah. So that, that's what it is. So like the other day, I saw someone without an iris because of some like terrible history of trauma or whatever. And I was reasonably certain that it was a surgical iridectomy that was why their iris was gone, not aniridia, because there was absolutely nothing remaining, not even a stump. Right. Sometimes there's so little iris tissue remaining, you even need to use gonioscopy to find it. Like that's how small amount there is remaining. But almost always in congenital aniridia, which is the topic of today's episode, there'll be at least be a little bit of iris left. And that's important we talk later about how that little bit of iris can rotate forward and cause glaucoma. So we'll get back to that in a bit. But it's also like you're kind of leading on Ben to uh, saying is that it's not just about the iris. The aniridia has a lot of other problems with it too. Not just necessarily what that iris causes problems with for glaucoma, but even on the other side of the wall, on the epithelial side of the cornea, there's issues too, right? With limbal stem cells. Right. So the first part of this episode, we're going to start talking about what comes with congenital aniridia. And the second half, we'll talk about the systemic genetic issues that come with types of aniridia. And that'll be yeah. the episode. So yeah. let's start front to back. 
cornea. I, I like the prompting. So in aniridia, patients can have limbal stem cell insufficiency and how that often initially manifests is panis. You know, remember that the uh, conjunctival epithelium knows to not grow onto the cornea largely because of the limbus. So if you have limbal stem cell insufficiency, or the limbus is just insufficient, then you can start to have a panis that grows over the cornea. Over time, this can lead to scarring and calcification that progressively, it starts peripherally because it starts at the limbus and it progress, progressively moves centrally. But, if we, but now let's go back to the iris. What happens if their iris does something because there's just a little bit of it there? In real congenital aniridia, there is still a little stump of iris left. and But when it's just a stump, it tends to rotate forwards. And that's a problem because forwards basically means putting yourself in some kind of some form of angle closure. If it's not totally closed all the time, then it certainly will lead to peripheral anterior synechiae, which over time will definitely scar up and close your angle. Well, I think it, it, it can lead to anterior synechiae. Like it doesn't always lead to anterior synechiae, just uh, to clarify that. Oh, yeah. Sorry. My yeah, no, hyperbolic okay. speech is getting the better of me. It's okay, it's, Trump. Uh, oh, okay. I think I headed you off of a dangerous <laughs> joke there. Um. <laughs> so, yeah, right. That stump can rotate forward or just because of the abnormal strom in the iris, it can develop syndicae. So that means that patients with aniridia can have glaucoma either when they were born immediately, though apparently it's a little more common for them to develop it maybe later in childhood or even as a young adult if they're going to develop glaucoma. Anywhere from a half to three quarters of patients will develop glaucoma. Okay, what about just behind the iris? What can they get there that's a problem? You can have a problem with your lens becoming a cataract a lot quicker than it would. So quick they can be born with cataract. Indeed, indeed. In especially anterior polar cataracts. Yeah, apparently that's that's what BCSE says. But uh, mm. they can get any type of cataract, but they can get especially anterior polar cataracts, reportedly. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to put in my pet theory about why cataracts develop more in aneritics. Sure. And it's not really my pet theory. It's, you know, from my attendings here. But yeah. the theory is that the iris and the lens interface, that distance between the iris and the lens, it's such a narrow space, like maybe six to seven microns in distance sometimes, and it changes in distance all the time. What's the point of it? Like, why would you risk being in, like at ever constantly a risk of pupillary block at any moment? Why wouldn't we have evolved or developed in a different manner, right? But it might be that the, the fluid dynamics of having a small space like that serve to route fresh aqueous humor right across the anterior surface of the lens where it's most needed. So it could be a nutritional foundation for the lens. And without that iris to direct flow of the aqueous that way, maybe that's why cataracts develop, especially if it's anterior polar. Kind of cool. I don't know. Yeah, that's a really cool theory. Never heard that one. Yeah, yeah I, should, I like uh, that a lot. I like that a lot. And that's def reminder. definitely not my theory. I should credit I should credit a pretty Bramalu with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, smart guy. Thanks, boss. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Dr. Ramalu. It's actually not just his theory either. I think I took that from a Quigley paper at one point. Yeah. Well, he can credit someone at Wilmer. Um, <laughs> like most. <laughs> anyway. One of those guys. Yeah. Awesome. 
And then the kind of last of the four major ocular manifestations of aniridia is foveal hypoplasia. So I couldn't find a great theory on that's like proven why patients with aniridia get foveal hypoplasia. So first, let's talk about what foveal hypoplasia is. So as you hopefully should know, or if you haven't read about it yet, the fovea is supposed to be a pit. So there's supposed to be a thickening of the ganglia cell layers at the parafovea, and then the retina kind of dips into this pit, and that's what we call the fovea, 1.5 millimeters across. Foveal hypoplasia is where you don't have that pit. It's just a straight line across. So it's almost like the fovea specifically did not develop. Other signs of foveal hypoplasia include absent foveal light reflex, and that light reflex is normally from that foveal pit. Two, they could have abnormal or different appearing macular pigment, so the, the pigment in the fovea can appear differently. And then three, the vessels that normally avoid the fovea, forming a foveal avascular zone, may instead cross into the fovea. So you can have blood vessels that kind of creepily cross into the fovea, as if there was no fovea, because that's what happens to foveal hypoplasia. If you have foveal hypoplasia, that means your central visual acuity will not be as good. You know, you can imagine if you lasered someone's fovea and got rid of it in an adult, they would have poor central vision. And the same goes for children who unfortunately are born with foveal hypoplasia. As a result, if it's congenital, then they can get nystagmus, typically a pendular nystagmus of some, of some type. So no one knows exactly why this happens. We're going to talk about in a bit how there's certain homeobox genes that cause aniridia, and perhaps those are important in foveal development as well. But uh, in terms of why it happens, you know, BCSE certainly doesn't have a good answer for it, and neither do we. I think it'll be, it'll maybe behoove someone who's like going to try to look for all these things earnestly in their first aneritic patient, and then the aneritic patient will hate them so much because you know how much, how photophobic they are, you know? Like it's always, you know, I always feel bad examining aneritics. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Like their sense. eyes are darting around everywhere. They're hurting all the time. And you're just like, oh man, <laughs> I'm like yeah. torturing you. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. That's tough with the nystagmus. So, and I guess that's something that, I mean, I honestly, I think I've seen one congenital aneurytic patient and like, you know, someone with traumatic hypo irradiate, like, you know, very little iris left. And hmm. um, I think that's something that's nice to keep in mind. For um, some reason, I feel like I saw a lot of them at Yale. In like a cornea clinic, you know? Yes, they saw you and they didn't see me. <laughs> Guess they avoided me. But no, it sucks for them. They have all these problems. They need to see cornea docs. They need to see glaucoma docs. They need to see sometimes, I guess, retinal docs or at yeah, least once. Yeah, probably early on. Right. Right, right. And then, and every time, <laughs> it's a miserable experience for these poor people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, I'm, I'm glad. I like wouldn't have really thought of that until probably my patient would have gotten um, frustrated with my exam. So that's actually a nice little um, tidbit to know. Mm. Um, okay. One other, before we move on to genetics, one other sidebar about foveal hypoplasia, because I doubt we're going to do a whole episode on it. Just, you know, other things that are associated with foveal hypoplasia, those include oh, albinism. Nice. What's that? I said, oh, nice. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Albinism, achromatopsia, and apparently microphthalmia. Who knew? Um, so that's like three A's. The microphthalmia, um, I just saw like on iWiki, but uh, the definitely albinism and achromatopsia are, are important to know. And, and then one more thing is one might ask, why does the foveal pit exist to begin with? 
you know, some people say it's to reduce the optical elements in the way of the photoreceptors right at the fovea. So you get rid of, you know, the outer plex or sorry, the inner plexiform layer, inner nuclear layer, and ganglia layer, and neurofiber layer. You get rid of them right over the fovea so that you can get as much light as crisply as possible, which is possible why that developed. However, there is such a condition as, quote, fovea plana. Now, this is not OCAP, but I just mentioned this for your interest, where you have someone who has the appearance, you know, like on OCT or on exam, has the appearance of foveal hypoplasia. They have just this flat fovea, but it turns out that they can still have excellent vision, something like 20-20 vision. So fovea plana is where someone has the appearance of foveal hypoplasia, but their cones are still organized to be most dense in the fovea. So, and that's how they can still have good vision. And because these people with foveal plana can't have good vision, it kind of calls into question this theory that it's to remove optical elements in the way of the fovea. One theory for why they exist, again, these are just all fun facts, but one theory about why the foveal pit exists is in theory it can cause a magnification effect. The retina has a different refractive index compared to the vitreous. So when the light hits the retinal vitreal interface, it actually can refract and in theory can do some sort of magnification effect. They've actually been able to um, show that this may even be clinically significant in certain other species, specifically raptor species. If you ever look at a raptor, um, you know, I think it's things like condors and such have a very deep foveal pit. Like it's, 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 it's like dramatically deep compared to humans. And they do suspect that perhaps, you know, in these animals with very high visual requirements, especially as a predator, uh, that, that that magnification may, in fact, may have some, maybe of some use. Probably not in humans, but I just thought that was a fun fact to share. Okay. Enough about raptors, Andrew. You need to shut up about birds. Okay. okay. I'm <laughs> okay. sorry. Okay. I do love birds. I'm going to ask you a question now. I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> All right. If you have a patient with aniridia and their dad has aniridia, what other testing besides a full ophthalmic exam do you need to do? And then... What if neither parent has aniridia? Then what testing do you have to do? So if just one parent had it, then it's probably in an inherited, like if you can prove that it's inherited in this very compatible pattern, where it's just like, oh, it takes us one parent and bam, the next kid has it for sure. That's probably autosomal dominant then. And it's probably genetically related to what aniridia is famously known for being related to the Pax6 gene mutation. Which you mentioned in the last episode about Axiplid Riegers. It's also affiliated with other genes, which I didn't list here. But But uh, most most strongly, it's aniridia. If you're going to remember one, it's Pax6 and aniridia. Uh, A little bit. Sometimes it can be associated with Axenfeld, I think, but mostly aniridia is its main thing. Right. Was your next question whether both parents had it? No, if neither parent has oh, it. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. I thought I heard you say both, and I was like, no, oh, I don't. Not, yeah. Genetic, <laughs> genetics just became much harder. I don't know. <laughs> um, if neither it's, parent it's or, hard. you know, like family member, if no one else in the family has aniridia, yeah. now what? What What do? Um, if nobody has it, then it must be sporadic or at least, at the very least some weird uh you know, incomplete penetrance thing that it, nobody else sporadic. ever had. Go, that... go, go for sporadic. <laughs> right, right. Sporadic, sporadic, sporadic. <laughs> just, yeah, just yeah, sporadic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's known, and this is something that you'll come to know or memorize too, sporadic aniridia is the one that should trigger your red flags. And this is 
not your usual intuitive thing. You want to look out for the genetic relations so you can do genetic counseling, warn people about their babies that might one day have this or probably will have this. That's not the case here. It's the it's the people who sporadically happened. It this happens to that you have to be caref- more careful of. And the reason for that is they might also have something called Wagger syndrome or W A G R syndrome, which is just an acronym that stands for all the things that could go wrong in this syndrome. The A stands for aniridia, so that's why that's there. Ben, what are the other? What's the W uh, G and R stand for? Yeah. So Wagger is W's Wilms tumor, which is like, I mean, maybe one of the most important ones there because that could be lethal. Then the G is gender urinary problems and the R is um, retardation, which... Wagger is from an earlier era yeah, in medicine. Yeah, <laughs> I really wish they would rename it by now, but here we are. Now, one of the BCS books does give some uh, figures on frequencies, like how often it's sporadic, how often it's you know, PAC6 related or autosomal dominant. Seems like you can divide it into thirds. A third of them are sporadic and two-thirds are autosomal dominant. So that's nice, but a third of these people is still a lot, so make sure you ask about the family history. The The reason all these extra additional things happen for the sporadic people, the Wilms tumor, the like urinary issues, those all come from this other gene that's kind of next to and near where the aniridia mutations are. This gene is called WT1, but in people who have large chromosomal deletions that just happen sporadically, that means whatever aniridia genes that were sitting next to this WT1 gene, the WT1 gene might also be hit too, which is why uh, you have to look out for it if those manifestations are there, the tumor, the the kidney problems, all that stuff. Something that uh, I only heard after we did the last episode, uh, like we... We did the entire glaucoma genetics sidebar in the last Axenfeld-Rieger episode. And then, like, uh, one of the great glaucoma geneticists of our era came to visit my program and had a little uh, journal club with her, Janie Wiggs up at Mass Eye and Ear. And she mentioned, she asked us, like, do you know the reason all these genes, gene, or all these problems and mutations are named after these genes? Hmm. It's not that you know, PAC-6 itself is responsible for iris development, although it is kind of. But she said a lot of these actual mutations like uh, CYP1B1 mutation or FOXY1, PIDX2, the actual mutation isn't really in the gene that, that, that has that name. It's actually usually in non-coding elements that are just next to the gene. And when they're trying to name the thing, they're like, well, what gene is closest to it that we know about? So PIDX2, the mutation that causes, say, Axenfeld-Rieger, isn't typically actually in the PIDX2 gene itself. It's in a non-coding region Mm -hmm. next to it, usually. And that can have a lot of implications because these non-coding regions, who knows what they're doing? They could be regulatory, like epigenetic factors that could play a role across the entire genome. So who really knows? In this case with aniridia coming back again, it's easy. WT1 is just an innocent bystander that also gets knocked out by a huge, large chromosomal deletion. But if you were wondering, why are these things so opaque? Why are these names like... You look up like, oh, this is a... 
transcriptase fork whatever maybe that should shed some light on my understanding of what's happening no it's just it was just around something easy to call it it's just right exactly <laughs> so we shouldn't make that much of a big deal about what it is these genes do because the mutation's not even in the gene that's such a hilarious way to name genes it's right? just, you just named after like oh hey yeah look there's like john cena let's name these you happen to be in connecticut let's say this is a john cena eye center <laughs> Right? One day you will have to explain to a patient why their sonic hedgehog disease is so serious. Yeah. Yeah. Also, as a total sidebar, after we recorded the Axenfold Rieger episode, I found out Faye, that girl who was uh, on like podcast a couple times ago, who also is my fiance, that that girl apparently did like a ton of research on Foxy One. <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness, I should have you on as like a little end oh. thing so you can tell us about Foxy One. She's like, I don't remember what it does. It, we just had it like shoot a molecule, another molecule, and then it did something. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's, this doesn't really help me understand Axenfold Rieger. She's like, yeah, it didn't help me either. So... <laughs> Anyways, that was I thought that was cute that she, because she listened to it and she was like, "Oh, hey, Foxy One, I did a lot of research on that." Yeah, one more, one more thing. You probably heard of uh, autosomal dominant aniridia. You probably heard of Wagner syndrome, but have you heard of Gillespie syndrome, which is the autosomal recessive version of aniridia? It's an aniridia that's inherited in an autosomal recessive fashion, which also can present with ataxia and uh, cognitive impairment as well, as well as aniridia. So that's just kind of our bonus one. I think the other two are much more important to remember, especially Wagger, knowing when you have to initiate testing for Wagger because of that Wilms tumor. But there is one more uh, systemic genetic association with aniridia that we should know about. Did you... Uh... Do you have a mnemonic or a way to remember the symptoms nope. for Gillespie syndrome? Because this time I do. <laughs> Hooray. Although, um, do you know who Dizzy Gillespie is? Um, yes. Yes, I do. He, I will, I will, I will spare you. Uh, he is the trumpet player, like the jazz trumpet player from like the early 20th century who just blew on the trumpet so hard that like his cheeks blew out. So he's the dude and all like, the pictures and photos of the, just has like giant cheeks, puffed up puffer fish cheeks while he's playing the trumpet. And he, he was nicknamed Dizzy because like, I don't know, he was an intoxicatingly dizzying player or whatever. But that is why I was remembered that people with Gillespie syndrome have mm-hmm. ataxia. Good luck with the other yeah, two. Yeah, we'll know. let your like memory <laughs> fill that in. Like why? Because <laughs> he would play you so well that You'd feel stupid in comparison actually, to his talent. Actually, yeah, that's sort of how I remembered it. It's totally not politically make, correct. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, no, absolutely not. Um, we're not gonna. Maybe he blew out his irises too. I don't know. Sorry, guys. <laughs> or your eyes would be just so wide with amazement and how good his playing was. Your sympathetic mm. drive. Would be the through problem. the roof <laughs> oh my God. if you saw him play. I mean, probably actually, he's one of the greatest Trump players of all time, right? Like, you actually probably would get quite a sympathetic drive if you saw him play. Maybe we we can debate that on, on jazz our next, for ears. The, the jazz, I think era jazz for, for ears, ears is probably. Which I think there's a lot of. <laughs> I, I there's a lot of. We're going to be able to make any big <laughs> cuts into the jazz, the jazz podcasting sphere. Well, I don't know. I I like it. I play piano jazz on. When I'm in the OR, what do you play? Oh wow, uh, I play acoustic covers. 
or I like oh. make snappy, snappy uh, comments to the uh, to the staff. I knew it. That's I knew it. You're just like I riffing just, and doing one-liners the entire time. It. Actually, honestly, I love our <laughs> OR staff. They do it too. So it's just like a lot of one-liners. Uh, so to start, can I do a quick summary? Mind if I hit hit us with a yeah, quick yeah, summary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So to summarize, what's known by Aniridia? One, it's a misnomer. They have some iridia. It's not totally, it's more like hypo-iridia, but, you know, it's already been named. The four ocular manifestations you really should know about aniridia are, one, limbal stem cell insufficiency, leading to corneal scarring. Two, glaucoma, which can usually some kind of ankle closure mechanism. Three, cataracts, classically anterior polar, but can be any type. And foveal hypoplasia, which can lead to poor vision and nystagmus. In terms of genetics, if it's uh, autosomal dominant inherited, that's the most common type, Philly with PAC6. If it's autosomal re- recessive, it's Gillespie syndrome, which is associated with ataxia. And it's so rare, it's 2% oh, of the time. There we go. It's extremely rare. 2% of those with aniridia. Got it. Got it. Got it. Compared to a third and two thirds. And they'll have cognitive um, difficulties with aniridia. And then three, if it's sporadic, that's actually the most dangerous because it could be associated with Wagner syndrome. So they need to have testing for Wilms tumor and the rest. But that's all we got. That's like aniridia. Yeah, it didn't. I guess it's a cherry on top for all of those of you who have studied so hard to get to this point. Good luck this yeah. coming weekend if you are able to take the test. I hope and... this episode was eye-opening for you. For you, mm-hmm. I feel for the OR staff. <laughs> <laughs> if you like um, what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at Eyes Four Ears with number four, <laughs> and look for our website www.eyesfourears.com with the number four. And you know, normally we talk about if you like support us, then you can follow. You know, give us a rating review. But you know, we hope that given OCAP is coming up, that you felt supported by this podcast. We wish you the best of luck with that. Or if your area is being hit hard by COVID-19, wish you, your families, and your friends the best of luck in the weeks to come. Stay healthy and stay safe, friends. Bye. We'll see you next week. Bye.